you'll take your Bible and join me in the book of 1 Peter and find chapter 3, that would be great. 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, grab that note page from your bulletin if you wouldn't mind. And if you need a Bible today, we can certainly share one we have in the back in case that's what you need. Also, I'll just ask you to, uh, as a kindness to all of us, just to make sure your cell phone is also silent. So, as you're making your way to 1 Peter chapter 3, church family, I just wanted to let you know that I recently came on to a little book that I wanted to share with you. This is the 30th anniversary edition of a book titled, Everything Men Know About Women. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the authors are Dr. Alan Francis and Cindy Cashman. On the back, it, it says this, famed psychologist Alan Francis, in collaboration with renowned behavioralist Cindy Cashman, has written a landmark book on men's understanding of the most complex of creatures, woman. Based on years of research and interviews with thousands of men from all walks of life, they present the most complete picture ever revealed of men's knowledge of the opposite sex. Fiercely frank and brilliantly insightful, this work spells out everything men know about such topics as making friends with women, romancing women, achieving emotional intimacy with women, and making commitments to women. And then you open it up, and it is 100 pages that are completely blank. There is nothing between these covers. In fact, I have dog-eared several pages for myself for quick reference in the future. <laughs> now, obviously, church family, this... This is a gag book. It, it's, it's meant to, to just be funny. Only, here's the thing. For more than a few women, more than a few wives, this little book, if we're honest, isn't very funny. It hits too close to home, and it touches a, a raw nerve for some. Some might go so far even to say, not only has my husband read that book, he's memorized it. <laughs> First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, a moment ago, Clint said, Lord, help us to not just be hearers, but doers of your word. May it be so for us, church family, as we step into this one verse. This one verse will occupy all of our time together this morning. So as we step back now into the book of First Peter, our study series called Exiles, Peter has had us for a few weeks now thinking in a very focused direction. He has had us thinking in an evangelism direction, a, a sharing Jesus and life in him with those who don't believe in Jesus yet direction. We're calling this part of the book of First Peter when evangelism doesn't look like evangelism because Peter is writing to first century Christians who are being intensely persecuted for loving Jesus Christ. And the only consistent way that they really have to proclaim their love for the Lord Jesus 
in their lives is not with words. They, they can't proclaim him with words without fear of really being persecuted severely, maybe even being killed. When we hear the word evangelism, we almost always think words. But that's not what Peter is thinking here. He thinks of a, of a life that has been transformed through faith in Jesus, bearing witness of him, even if words are never spoken. As Bob alluded to a moment ago, proclaiming Jesus with your life, not necessarily with your mouth. And so in this particular focus, Peter takes us into four places where unbelieving people can actually see the gospel before maybe they ever hear Jesus' name. And the first place is in our personal lives. And we spent a whole morning talking about this out of chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In verse 12, Peter writes and he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is among those who don't believe in Jesus, Keep that conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, what's the next word, church? See, see your good deeds and glorify God. In other words, they might come to faith in Jesus. And so as, as odd as it may sound, evangelism actually begins right here with a transformed life that evidences my relationship with Jesus without ever saying a word. Then Peter took us into the civic arena and he challenged, uh, challenged us to think about citizenship evangelism. If you were here uh, on that particular morning, it's verses 13 to 17 of chapter two. By being the very best citizens we can be, respectful of those who rule over us, submitting to those who are in authority over us, and living within the law, even when maybe a law is unjust or a, a ruler is cruel, as it was in Peter's day, we might just cause some who are hostile to Christianity to maybe rethink that as they see the outworking of a life being transformed by faith in Jesus. Again, thinking about evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. And then in verses 18 to 20, Peter said, oh, and by the way, let's talk about vocational evangelism. Christian in the first century or in the 21st century, your workplace can be your platform for Jesus, even if you get, never get to name his name. Strive to be the very best employee that you can be, submitting to your boss, putting on display every day the kind of work ethic that reflects Jesus' character, to all who you work beside, who, are, who work under you, or who are over you, vocational evangelism. And then in verses 21 to 25, Peter paused, he took a breath, and he pointed us to Jesus as the, the perfect example of what this submissive spirit in all of these other arenas, well, what that looks like. Well, it, it, it's just beautifully portrayed by the person of Jesus in verses 21 to 25, the last part of chapter 2. But as we learned last Sunday, uh, Sunday together, Peter is not done thinking about evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism. And so last time he turned us in the direction of what we're calling home front evangelism, maybe the hardest evangelism of all. That place where in a marriage, one partner, maybe it's the wife, maybe it's the husband, they love the Lord Jesus, but their spouse has not joined them 
in their faith journey, at least not yet. And so in the privacy of the home, within a family, in the most intimate of all human relationships, emotionally and physically, evangelism without words, Peter says, can happen. And this is his focus in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And this, this common thread of a, of a submissive heart, a submissive spirit that plays such a critical role in witnessing for Jesus in those previous three places of our, of our personal, our civic, and our, our vocational life shows up once again now here in the home front arena. Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Likewise, wives... Now, that word likewise, what's it doing? Well, it's pointing us back to all that Peter has just told us, beginning at verse 11 of chapter 2. Likewise, wives, you be subject. You be submissive. There's that common thread. Be subject, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be what? One, without a word. By the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Evangelism that doesn't look like evangelism in the home front. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Now, we talked about this last week, but next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to talk about modesty evangelism out of these two verses. And you may want to join us for that little trek. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So Peter says that a a Christian wife in a marriage where her husband does not share her faith, she can wield an eternity-changing power just by the way she lives. As she determines to reflect the character of Jesus in authentic ways in her marriage, the Holy Spirit may use her in a powerful way to draw her unbelieving husband to consider Jesus as as he sees the reality of Jesus working its way out of her life. Home front evangelism. And all of that brings us this morning then to verse 7 and to the Christian husband. Now, who might be married to an unbelieving wife. Verse 7, likewise husbands. In context, this word likewise takes us right back up to verse 1. Christian husband, just as Christian wives devote themselves to home front evangelism, so you do likewise. Peter's not suddenly shifting gears here and intending now to to talk with us about about Christian marriage in a general sense between two believing partners, a husband and a wife. And I only mentioned that to us because it's amazing to me the number of Bible commentaries and books on Christian marriage that take verse 7 and they completely ignore the context. Now, what Peter says here 
in verse 7 is great advice for any Christian husband who happens to be married to a wonderful Christian wife. It's great counsel for him, great great instruction, but that's not the focus of verse 7, and it's important that we know that. Christian husband married to an unbelieving wife, a wife who might be strongly critical of Christianity, maybe totally closed off to any notion of of Jesus being God and, and her need of him as Savior in her life. He rose from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and the grave, and And she's opposed to all of those kinds of thoughts. Far from any hint of you, Christian husband, of backing away from her, backing out of the relationship emotionally or physically because she refuses to follow you and your faith. Far from thinking, I'm out of here. I'm going to find me a good Christian gal and, and marry her. Far from any of those thoughts, Peter says, you, Christian husband, You live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Clearly, the context is a believing husband married to an unbelieving wife. Are we all on the same page together? You must say yes. Okay, great, great. So Peter begins, uh, as you see there on your note page, with an impossible-to-miss command that comes out of verse 7. And this command comes to us in no less than four different parts. First, when Peter says, likewise husbands, he's calling for that same heart quality from Christian husbands that he just called for a moment ago from Christian wives. Be submissive. Have that submissive spirit. It's the same heart quality that shows up in our personal and our civic and our vocational arenas. And in the wifely arena, it shows up. Have a submissive heart, a submissive spirit, because it plays such a critical role in bearing witness to the reality of Jesus in your life. And here this this submissive spirit appears yet again in verse 7, hidden within the folds of that word likewise. And this would have would have been a hugely radical idea, church family, for any husband living in the brutally male-dominated culture and climate of the first century. Husbands ruled and wives submitted. That was it. End of story. We can be sure that, that Peter's exhortation here is not lost on these first century Christian husbands as the Holy Spirit is is asking them to submit. Likewise, you husbands, you have this same submissive spirit. Now, an observant 21st century Christian husband says, well, I thought God in his word instructs and and says, I created and designed marriage for husbands to, to fill the role of leadership, to to be in that place of directive authority, to be in the place of headship in the home. Well, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. But even in this, a husband is to possess a submissive heart towards his wife. Ephesians 5.21, the Apostle Paul, spirit-led, makes this general statement to all followers of Jesus. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very interestingly, Peter or Paul then gives us a whole section on Christian marriage right after he makes this statement. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, put them before yourself. Put others before yourself. Both wives and husbands fall under this directive. Submit to one another. So for husbands, does this mean that they relinquish their God-assigned leadership duties in the marriage? No, not at all. But he is willingly going to subordinate his own wants, his own desires, and determine to meet his wife's needs and desires. Submitting in that way in hopes that she may be drawn to see Jesus in a saving way. And this submission, again, it runs so counter to how our sinful hearts are naturally wired. All of our hearts, not just, not just husbands, but wives also. We don't naturally want to consider someone else's needs. That doesn't come naturally. My needs? Sure. Let's talk about my needs. I want to talk about my needs all day long. Her needs? Eh, not so much. This inner, natural, self-serving, self-loving, self-promoting spirit is exactly what God wants to see die in all of his people. He wants that to die. Marriage is great. Marriages are really the result of the slow death of our independent, me-first, natural orientation. And we need God's help to do that. But from that death, death to self, rises something way better. A selfless Christian husband, in verse 7, who experiences great joy and fulfillment in his marriage by seeking to be a joy to his wife. That's the essence of love, living for the good, the, the bettering, the joy of another, just like Jesus did for us, right? Same thing. And what will this submissive spirit look like in this husband? Well, the command continues. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives. That's the second part of the command. Submission's the first part. Live with her is the second. Now, it might seem kind of odd for Peter to say, live with your wife, husband. Wouldn't that just be a given, an automatic? Well, apparently not, and especially not in the first century. If a husband's wife refused to follow him in any arena of marriage in the first century, he could do anything that he wanted to her, including divorce her, get rid of her. In fact, he could even take her life. If you won't follow me in faith, then I'm done with you. I'll be rid of you. I want nothing to do with you. Peter says that might be the climate in the culture. That might be the attitude of the culture. But Christian husband, that will not be your attitude. No, you live with her. You stay with her. Now this word live here in verse 7, it's an interesting word. It's the word sunoiken. It comes from combining together two Greek words, smaller words, oikos, meaning house, and soon, meaning together. You 
push those two words together and you come up with sunoikin, meaning to live in the same house together. King James Version translates this verse, husbands dwell with your wives. What's interesting about this, uh, this word is that in the Old Testament, it is also used for sexual, the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage. And Peter is fully aware of that as he chooses this particular word. And so what's he saying? Christian husband, live with your wife in a deeply intimate way. Don't cut yourself off from her emotionally or physically just because she's not a Christian and you are. Don't just live under the same roof with her. You live with her. You live together. You sleep together. Someone says, guys don't need to be told to do that last part. Well, apparently they do. Live with her. Husbands, you be there for her in every dimension of your married life because this may play a role in how she comes to faith in Jesus. Attentively present. That's the word I would the words I would choose. You be attentively present. And Peter says, This isn't a suggestion, this is a command. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally dwell with her according to knowledge. Now, this is the third part of the command. And Peter puts this in the present tense. Constantly be living with your wife in ways that demonstrate to her that you know her in practical, difference-making ways. He's calling the Christian husband to be a student of his wife. Now he doesn't say it this way, but he's actually saying, get a PhD in the study of your wife, Christian husband, in your marriage. You get a PhD. How is she really wired? What makes her tick? What what causes hurt in the deepest part of her heart? What makes her laugh? What makes her cry? What communicates love to her in the most real ways? What does she like? What frustrates her? What are her dreams? What are her values? What could she care less about? What makes her feel vulnerable? What makes her feel protected? What makes her feel cherished? You know, going back to this little book, Everything Men Know About Women, As we noted at the beginning, this is supposed to be a little joke book, a little gag kind of a book. But there are wives who would say, no, this is no joke. That's not a joke for me. It's how she feels when when it comes to her husband living with her and really understanding her. She feels like the pages are blank. It's a hurting marriage with a sad wife when... She doesn't think her husband knows her. It's an even sadder situation when she feels like her her husband doesn't care to know her. Wayne Grudem, a respected Bible teacher, commenting on this part of verse 7, writes, A husband who lives according to knowledge will greatly enrich his marriage, yet such knowledge can only be gained through regular study of God's word and regular unhurried times 
of private interaction together as husband and wife. And so the challenge that comes out of this for all of us, whether we're, we're, we're married to a non-Christian wife or not, is, man, am I making time to really get to know her? Really know her? Is that happening for me? That's the challenge. And all this feeds into the fourth part of this command. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing what? Honor. Honor. Now, this is really quite an extraordinary exhortation to Christian husbands, completely counter to the prevailing mindset uh, of the culture of Peter's day. Peter says, even if the culture doesn't honor her, husband, Christian husband, you, you honor her. And here, this means masculine respect and, and sensitivity to your wife's needs, to who she is and, and, and what she is as a person. Synonyms might be words like nurture or, or cherish. You honor Now, some might be inclined to say that men, husbands in this case, are really short on this virtue. I'm not really sure that's true, though. I think men can show amazing honoring skills, tenderness, nurturing, and cherishing attributes to things in their garage. He's got a Harley named Maggie May. He's got a 47 coupe named Rose. He's got a boat named Charlotte. He takes you into his garage and his eyes just sparkle. He must wax that machine every day. You can literally see your reflection in the paint. He speaks in hallowed tones like he's in church when he tells you about the cubic inches and the foot-pounds of torque and the, the gear ratios and the top-end speed, and he, he never drives her on rainy days. He never drives her on gravel roads. He only parks her in the shade and never under a tree. And there she is in all of her beauty on his computer screen. He knows how to honor. Guys know how to honor. Peter says, Christian husband, show honor to the lady in your life who is not in your garage. You know how to do it. Tenderness, sensitivity, nurturing, cherishing, respecting. That's the command. Submissive, attentively present, in the know and honoring, all to the end that an unbelieving wife might see her husband and his transformed life and be compelled to look at Jesus differently. And of course, how much more fitting are all four of these commands to a husband who is in a Christian marriage and blessed to have a Christian wife? These become imperative, even more so, for us. All of these thoughts are wonderfully captured 
for us in the words of Paul to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25. And I put this little passage there at the bottom of your note page just so you'd have it as a quick reference. But listen to these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, love her sacrificially. Putting yourself second and her first, just like Jesus did for you. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. Oh, there's that, those two words again. Just as Christ does the church. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. And then Peter says, do this because she is the weaker vessel, as a weaker vessel. And here the command gives way to the reality. If you flip your note page over, she is the weaker vessel, a weaker creation. And so Peter draws upon the imagery now of God as that, that master potter and, and, he, and, and we're the clay that he, he molds and fashions and, and forms as he wills. And he makes woman in his sovereignty, Peter says, the weaker vessel. But in what way, everybody might ask, well, what, in what way is she weaker? Well, maybe before we answer that question, let's not miss this term, weaker. It is really a comparative, isn't it? It's a comparative. Wives are weaker compared to husbands, but what in reality are husbands? Weaker. They're weak, aren't they? They're weak. Compared to wives, they are they're weak. She's weaker, but he is what? He's weak. We need to see it that way. He's not strong. She's weaker than weak him, right? They're both weak. She's just a little bit weaker than he is. And so this is a great reminder to all of us guys, whenever we think we're all that, no, you're not. We're weak. She's weaker, but we are weak. But in what way is this true? In what way is she weaker? Women and wives are not weaker in character. They are not weaker in, in, in morality. They're not weaker in intelligence. They're not weaker in virtue. They're not weaker in their giftedness. They're not weaker in their spirituality. Many times, wives leave the guys in the dust in all of those arenas. When Peter says they are weaker vessels, he's thinking in two specific places that are generally true the world over. Women in most, if not all, cultures are weaker than men physically, right? We would all agree with that. They're weaker physically, and, and, weak, and, and women are weaker than men in almost all cultures socially. Those two arenas. Though there are exceptions, men are physically larger, and they are stronger than women. They're weak, 
They're weak. They're not stronger than nature. They're not stronger than many animals. They're not stronger than God. But they're stronger than women as a general statement. But they're still weak. And of course, in a fallen world, men being stronger than women have pressed this physical advantage socially. In Peter's time, as we've already talked about it, women had no rights. They had no voice. They had no place in the society but to serve the men. They were dismissed. They were marginalized. And and this weaker vulnerability physically and socially has resulted, as we all know, in women and wives being exploited and abused in the most grievous and unspeakable ways for literally thousands of years. Literally. This is one of the most tragic consequences of the fall is how women have been treated because they are the weaker vessel. Peter here comes to the defense of women, Christian and specifically in this case unbelieving women, and he says, Christian husband, don't you ever use your greater physical strength against your wife, ever. And don't you go along with your male-dominated society's rules that are meant to keep wives and women in their place underneath you. Don't exploit her physical and social weakness just because you can, because you happen to be a little stronger than she is. You do the very opposite of that. You be submissive. You be attentively present. You know her deeply, and you honor her at all times. Now, this was such a radical way of thinking and acting that my guess is that most unbelieving wives in the first century culture of the day would not have known what to do with that. And that's Peter's point. That's his point, that she might be inclined to take a second look at the Jesus who has transformed the heart of her husband. Home front evangelism. It drives this whole moment. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Next phrase, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Here comes the shared gift there on your note page. Now, this is such a cool part of this verse. Grant her honor as a fellow heir with you of the grace of life. What's the grace of life here? Well, maybe it'd be better to start by ask by saying, what is the grace of life not? Well, it's not eternal life. Peter's not talking about eternal life here. This is not the saving grace that God pours out on a sinner who trusts in his son. And we know that it can't be that. Why? Why, church? Why can't it can't can't be the saving grace? She's not a believer. She's not a believer, and she may never be a believer. So she can't be a fellow heir in this moment for sure. May she one day become that? Well, certainly, but in this moment she's not. She doesn't have eternal life yet. And so the grace of life has to be something else. What is it? Well, grace in Scripture is another word for gift. Getting something that we don't deserve. Salvation is a grace gift. We deserve hell, 
God graciously gives us heaven through Jesus. What Peter's actually saying to the Christian husband here is that his wife is a fellow heir with him, his equal in one of the best, if not the best gifts that God has given in this earthly realm, the gift of marriage. She is his equal in this marriage. That's what Peter is saying. In fact, remember, if you will, in the garden of, in Genesis chapter 1, Adam, he's, he's said to be incomplete. He's incomplete until God brings him Eve and gives Eve to him as a gift in marriage. And so even in the unimaginable beauty of the Garden of Eden, Adam was missing something until God gave him the gift of her, Eve. Christian husband, you and your wife are heirs together. You are equals together in something wonderful designed by God and given to all mankind. You make sure you always treat her as a fellow heir with you in this amazing thing called marriage. Are you hearing, Peter? It's what he's saying. To the end that she might know Jesus. Yes, you still fulfill your God-defined role as a husband who leads and loves. And yes, wife, in your your role, you respect and you submit to your husband's leadership. That's God's design. That's his great design. But you're heirs together. You are equals in this marriage. And again, this was so radical of a thought in Peter's day. Sadly, it's pretty radical thought even in our day. She's your fellow heir. You're equal. Treat her that way. Why? Why? Last part of verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. And here we come lastly to the motive for all that we've been talking about. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since you are heirs, since, since, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, motive, your prayers may not be hindered. Someone reads that and says, kind of an odd concluding thought here. Rather self-serving, it feels like. Do these things... For your wife, so that you get your prayers answered. Is that what Peter is saying? Do these things so that you get your prayers answered. Now, it's true. If a Christian husband casually or carelessly blows off God's clearly given instructions here in verse 7, we would just call that disobedience. And every time we're walking in disobedience, that impacts our prayer life, right? It does that. Sin impacts our prayer life. But that's really not what Peter is saying. What's he saying? Church family, what do you think in this context this Christian husband is actually praying for? What's he praying for? Yes, he's praying for his wife to come to faith in Jesus, right? That's what he's praying for. But that prayer is going to be hindered 
is going to be hindered from being answered. Not that it will never be answered, but it will be hindered from being answered in the moment if, if he's not loving her and, and treating her in all the ways that God has made known to him in his word and especially here in verse 7. His prayers for her are going to be hindered. And so what does he do? He dies to himself which allows the Holy Spirit to raise up a new man, a a new husband through faith in Jesus, a more Christ-like, Jesus-reflecting husband who can lead his wife but humbly serve her at the same time. He is attentively present for her physically and emotionally all of the time. He's earned his Ph.D. in wifeology. He really does know this woman. He honors her, making her feel cherished. And he never, ever takes advantage of her, though he is stronger than her physically and may be socially encouraged to dominate her. Instead, he uses his strength, though he is weak, to protect her and to promote her. For she is his equal, God's gift to him. And all of this, if he's doing all of this, it may have an eternally good end. She might one day fall at the foot of the cross as he has done. And the two will truly become one. Home front evangelism.